Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. This is God's holy and inspired word. Without error, perfectly able to accomplish all of his purposes, he gives it to his people for our good. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word endures forever. So let us hear from God's word, Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18. And as I conclude this reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. You may respond with, thanks be to God. Philippians 1, beginning in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and before your word. We tremble before this word. And Father, we ask that in these moments you would be pleased to teach us from your word, to encourage us from your word, to build up and edify your church, that it would not just be information, That goes into our minds. But Father, it would go from the head to the heart. And Father, that it would move our hands as we serve you in our lives. We thank you for this church. We thank you for the installation of these officers today. We pray that you would bless them in their work. Father, we are a church that loves to worship you. We love to hear from your word. And we need that because there are many people in our midst who are struggling, many people who cannot be here because they are sick and afflicted. And so, Father, we ask that you would build all of us up together unto that calling that you have for us as we go through this world that is often difficult, that is often sad. Father, we thank you for the way in which you continue to show yourself faithful even in the valley. We pray for the Vandermeer family that you'd continue to uphold them. We thank you that you've been pleased to bring Cal Coster out of the hospital and that he is able to be with us today. We pray for many others who receive care, those 
who are afflicted each and every day, those who stay home, who can't get out anymore. And we think of Ruby Winter, Evelyn Belgrave, Eileen DeBach, Joyce Kramer, Sylvia DeGraff, so many others, Father, who are afflicted in these ways, Andreas Lewis. We lift them up to you, Fran Heisman. And Father, we, we confess that we are inadequate to care, uh, but you know all of our needs, all of their needs, and you're a good God. We pray for Lynn and Mary Lou Van Beek as they continue to uh, help and uh, wait by the bedside of Dan Credit after his uh, horrific accident. We pray that you will sustain him and sustain the family and friends. Uh, we thank you for the South Holland Fire Department and all those who serve in our community in those ways. We thank you that, uh, for the way in which they serve us, keep us safe, and pray for them, that you would sustain them as well. And we pray that your healing hand would be upon Dan and that your name would be glorified in that and in all situations. We pray that we would be consumed with a passion for the glory of God and that you will build us up for that work. Make us zealous for your gospel, for your kingdom. Zealous, as the book of Titus says, for good works, knowing that we've been saved by grace. Encourage us now through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Imagine an employee, uh, a worker, calls his boss and says, I won't be able to work for a while. I'm not going to be around. Uh, the boss will probably ask for a reason. And if the reason is, uh, I'm in prison and I'm going to be here a while, then the boss may get frustrated. Uh, he may be angry. He may criticize his employee. He may even fire his employee, but he will certainly not say, that's not a good enough excuse, you need to be at work tomorrow anyways, because uh, prison contains you, doesn't it? You're not able to, to freely go to and fro. It completely hinders your life, your work, uh, your activities, and that's why prison, generally speaking, is a deterrent to bad conduct. There's a lot of bad folks in our society that will refrain from committing crimes because they don't want to go to jail. They don't want to go to prison and be there for a long time. Christians certainly don't relish being in prison. But as we think about the history of the church, as we read the scriptures, as we think about the situation of the Apostle Paul here in particular, we realize that some of our best work is done there. For Christians, some of our best work is done in prison. Unlike normal earthly vocations that we engage in, our spirituality uh, can grow. And our communion with, Christ, with and in Christ can not only exist, but it can flourish in a context like prison. It can flourish in a context like the hospital bed. It can flourish in a context like the valleys that life often presents us with, our losses and crosses. You're thinking about prison and those who are imprisoned for Christ, and I started going through my library, realized how many books that I had that in some sense connected to that type of situation. A faithful Christian 
who is imprisoned for Christ. And, and just a mountain of content, I could have just quoted uh, you know, piece after piece after piece uh, this morning to encourage us to realize that this is something that God's people have always had as a part of their community, that people are imprisoned for Christ. Samuel Rutherford, a Reformed Scottish minister, spent years in exile and imprisonment, but he continued to, in a sense, pastor his congregation while he was in prison, while he was in exile. He pastored them, he shepherded them, and he did so through his letters. His letters have stayed with us almost 400 years now and have been regarded as some of the most beautiful uh, Christian writing that has ever been given to the church. And he's often calling his people to have a a heavenly mindedness, to to set their focus on eternal life and that which God has given to us that awaits us after this world. And so he writes this to one of his congregants, build not your nest here. This world is a hard, ill-made bed. There's no rest in it for your soul. Awake, awake, and make haste to seek that pearl Christ that this world does not see. Your night and your master Christ will be upon you within a clap. Your hand breadth of time will not bide you. Take Christ, though it is a storm to follow him. Though this day is not yours nor Christ's, the morrow will be yours and his. I would not exchange the joys of my bonds and imprisonment for Christ with all the joy of this dirty and foul-skinned world. I am filled with Christ's love. The point is this, that men and women who are imprisoned for Christ are able to testify to a particular truth in a special way, and it's this. This world is not our home, and that our joy is not directly tied to our circumstances. This world is not our home, and our joy is not directly tied to our circumstances, We've been following, praying for, oftentimes, uh, Reformed Christians at uh, Early Rain Covenant Church in China, and their pastor has been able to encourage believers throughout the world, even in the midst of his imprisonment. He's encouraged the hearts of thousands. It illustrates exactly what we see here in Philippians, doesn't it? The Apostle Paul, in chains for Christ, the gospel is advancing. Pastor Wang Yi of Early Rain Covenant Church, writes this letter from a Chengdu jail. He says, All hideous realities, all unrighteous politics, all arbitrary laws manifest the cross of Jesus Christ, which is the only means by which anyone may be saved. All of these things serve to manifest the cross of Christ and to manifest the ultimate realities. He goes on to say, this is why the church was put on the earth, to testify to the world about Jesus, to testify to the middle kingdom that's earth, about the kingdom of heaven, to testify to earthly momentary lives about heavenly eternal life. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? To testify to the middle kingdom about the kingdom of heaven and about eternal life. How do we do that? We do it by realizing how it is that Paul is doing it here and by adopting that same mentality. We need to realize the biblical perspective. What is the the perspective on life that scripture gives to us? To realize that and then to adopt it for ourselves. To realize that perspective and adopt it for ourselves. And we do it particularly, as Paul shows us here, by rethinking worldly prestige. Rethinking it. How do we do that? We rejoice in the person of Jesus Christ. So we need to realize, rethink, 
and rejoice. Realize, rethink, and rejoice. And by doing so, we'll see that what worked for Paul can work for us as well. Realize the biblical perspective, rethink worldly prestige, rejoice in the person of Christ. This is a bit of a missionary report, which is appropriate because the Philippians are supporters of Paul. Uh, They give to his ministry, they give him financial support, and the stakes are a bit high in this missionary report, aren't they? Because as we've mentioned recently, there were some who probably thought, Paul's ministry is done, he's in prison, what can he do? What can someone do from jail? And so Paul undercuts all of that by saying that his current situation has not stopped progress, but it's actually advanced the progress of the gospel. Notice in verse 12, he says this, my imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. Bit of a counterintuitive thing to say, isn't it? I have been in chains, I have not been able to move around, but the gospel has advanced. Now, Paul there is, is telling us something about the kind of worldview we're to have about the gospel. There's a, there's a forward movement. It's moving through the world. It's going to the ends of the earth. But it often does so uh, in the midst of evidence to the contrary. It may seem like the church is getting weaker, but actually its progress is increasing. And that helps to develop that kind of worldly pers- or the earthly, or sorry, heavenly perspective that Paul prescribes for us here. So he makes these claims, and he says that the, actually the gospel has been advancing. And he furnishes two pieces of evidence. The first is evangelism, the second is discipleship. So the first piece of evidence is that even though he has been imprisoned, he's been able to share the gospel with many people. He's been imprisoned for Christ, chained. In fact, he's been chained uh, to the Roman guards. That's normally how this kind of situation would have played out. Paul would have had to rent a home, and that would have cost money. That's one of the reasons why he still needed financial support. He's under house arrest, but as he's under house arrest, he would be chained, literally chained, to a Roman guard. As Paul speaks directly here of his chains, the chains that I bear, I bear for Christ. In fact, I bear them in Christ. He uses that phrase in Christ, which doesn't come through in our translation. But the idea of being in Christ, Paul alludes to that as a way to show solidarity with Christ. He's entering the sufferings of his Savior. He's suffering along with him, following Jesus on the way of the cross. But it's not just that he is chained, it's to whom he is chained. He seems to allocate a lot of importance to the fact that he is chained to these Roman guards who are part of the palace guard. This would have been an elite level of soldiers. Something like the Navy SEALs that we have today. But their main duty would have been protecting Caesar. But they were so elite, they were so powerful that they actually had had a hand in dethroning Caesars and appointing new ones. They had done that with Caligula and Claudius. This was an elite band of soldiers. In other words, Paul rejoices. He rejoices that he has been able to share the gospel and the hope of Christ with this particular group of soldiers, the palace guard. One commentator imagines how one of these conversations might go, and I I thought it was beautiful, so I'll share it with you. Imagine Paul chained to a Roman guard and the guard asks him, why are you in chains? In other words, what, what got you here? You can imagine they would have hours upon hours chained to each other, even though the chain could have been 
of considerable length, but they probably would have talked from time to time. Why are you in chains, Paul? Paul says something like this. I am in chains because I belong to Christ. I serve Christ. Jesus Christ, in humility and in obedience to God's will, died for our sins on a Roman cross under Roman power. Jesus Christ is now the risen and exalted Lord above all powers. Christ called me to proclaim the good news about him among the nations. Christ is the savior of all who trust him. One day everyone will recognize and worship Christ as Lord of all. In other words, a Roman guard would immediately be able to see and know that Paul is imprisoned for Christ. Not to mention the fact that he hears the proclamation of the gospel and perhaps some of them, perhaps many of them, believed. And Paul says, this is a good thing, a wonderful thing, a marvelous thing, that I've been able to share the gospel with these men, with these guards. It's a bit of a reframing, isn't it? He, he reframes from a, a negative into a positive, but it's not just sort of a psychological trick, is it? It's rooted in reality, and Paul says that this is the way that as Christians, we need to think about things. We need to think about all things. Why? Because our God is sovereign, and all things serve to accomplish his saving purposes. All things serve the glory of God and the salvation of his people. Remember what Joseph says in the, in the book of Genesis. His brothers have betrayed him. They've sold him into slavery. They acted like he was dead. They forgot about him for decades. And then when they come to him, they realize that he is in a place of power in Egypt. They fall down before him and they're so sorry. And they know that it, it probably shouldn't be that Joseph forgives them. But what does he say? You intended it for evil. But God intended it for good. A sovereign God can work in the midst of the sinful actions of people. I mentioned Pastor Yi of Early Rain Covenant Church in China. Just before he was arrested, he preached a sermon where he talked about three uh, marvelous things that God has done in 2018. 2018, the entire year was filled with strife and persecution and threats of imprisonment for him and his church, and it ended with a flurry of arrests. And over 300 of his church members were placed into prison. And in the midst of that, he says, here's three marvelous things that God has done in 2018. A reframing just like Paul had done in a biblical way. The first was this. The move towards totalitarianism in his home country, in China, had caused people to despair of the People's Republic of China. It caused people to abandon hope. And understand that there is ultimately no hope in their earthly home. Now their situation is much different than ours, isn't it? And many of you, if you've had these personal conversations with me, know that I love our land. I love this country. I put the American experiment, the American project up against any other land in the history of human civilization. But we also need to remember, don't we? We also need to remember that, as Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. That even though God has allowed us to live in a blessed land where we can gather freely, where we don't have the threat of imprisonment, where's our ultimate home? Where's our ultimate king? It's in heaven. He says the totalitarianism has caused them to despair of the People's Republic of China to abandon hope. He says this is a wonderful thing. It's caused people to rethink exactly how they're answering those ultimate questions. It's driven people to the Lord Jesus Christ, he says. 
The second thing is this. He says, the move towards despotism and the persecution of the church has shown to the world that the leadership of his homeland, his home country, is like a drunken man engaging in an insane battle. They've been able to proclaim that the the, the battle's already won. It's a futile. to, To wage war against the church of Jesus Christ is the craziest thing that anybody could do. He writes this. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief towards those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. It shows that they are engaged in a futile war. And then lastly this, various religious leaders within their homeland have acquiesced to the leadership in China Uh, Buddhist leaders, there's a a pagan church movement within China that has uh, acquiesced and bowed the knee to the president of China. Even, uh, unbelievably sadly, the the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church has given ultimate say to his president to appoint cardinals in that country. And Pastor Yi has said this has driven people to the gospel of Christ. This has driven people to show or to know and to recognize that their only hope is in Christ alone. He quotes a devotional and says this, Every time trouble comes to you, she brings a nugget of gold in her hand. He challenges them, say, Do you see that nugget of gold that the Lord is giving to you in this trial, in this circumstance? We could say the same thing to ourselves, couldn't we, brothers and sisters? Every time trouble comes to you, she brings a nugget of gold in her hand. All of this reminds us that For Christians, some of our best work is done in the most trying of circumstances. It's about adopting and glimpsing the perspective that Paul is giving to us. The great blessing of knowing that Christ rules and he reigns. And once that perspective is adopted, what does it produce? It produces joy in all circumstances. It produces courage. It produces perseverance under trial. It makes sense then that Paul's next piece of evidence is not just the evangelism piece of the palace guard, but rather discipleship. That God's people have been encouraged. That as he has been in prison and as people have seen that the the gospel has continued to advance, what has it produced? A greater edification, a greater sanctification in the church. Most of the brothers in the Lord, it says in verse 14, have been encouraged to speak with more courage and fearlessness. Paul here, in this passage, he has the distinction of ministers of the word and the people of God generally. And here it seems like he's talking about all of the people of God, the brothers and sisters in the Lord. Have all been encouraged, encouraged, you can't spell encouraged without courage, they've been given courage to live fearlessly and to speak the word of the Lord. It seems like most scholars agree that Paul here is saying that All of God's people have some responsibility to speak the word of God without fear. To be witnesses to the truth of Jesus Christ even unto the ends of the earth. He has at the center of that the official ministry of the word. Those who have been ordained to preach the gospel in an official capacity. But all of us are to be filled with courage and fearlessness. And at times to speak the word of God without fear. To answer for the hope that is within us. 
the word for being encouraged, it's about being so convinced that something's true that it evokes a a confidence and an assurity of action. Being so convinced of something that that you are confident enough to act it out. The question here is, what are they convinced of? They're convinced that Paul's right. That the gospel is advancing against all odds. And as you realize that the gospel advances against all odds, it convinces you that Christ rules and reigns above all earthly powers. That he really is that risen and exalted Lord. Paul's saying God is still calling people to himself. Paul is saying that God is still encouraging and edifying his church. And he's wanting to glimpse the masterpiece of God in the midst of this. He's saying, look at what God is doing. Look at what these men are intending for evil, but what God is intending for good. Look at how God is weaving together all of these things for his glory and for the salvation of his people. The challenge to us, brothers and sisters, is to glimpse that and to adopt it for ourselves. To say nothing, nothing stands in the way of God accomplishing his purposes. Nothing can, for he is sovereign. What do we need for that? We need the Holy Spirit, don't we? One pastor prays in the midst of, this tri- of a trying circumstance of his church in the midst of persecution. He says, may the Lord fill us with the Holy Spirit. May the Lord comfort us with the Holy Spirit. May the Lord help us, not, uh, help us look not at those external things, those great and difficult things that trouble us and threaten our faith. May the Lord help us to see with the eyes of faith that victory scene. To see the triumphant return of the king who is to come again. To see that God is the same this year as he has been throughout all human history. He never changes. God is always good. God is always wise. God never makes mistakes. Amen. So we're called to realize that perspective. To adopt it for ourselves. And then just as we close in the next few minutes. We'll quickly go over this next one. We rethink prestige as we rejoice in the person of Christ. We rethink prestige as we rejoice in the person of Christ. Paul moves to talk about more of those who are officially commissioned to preach uh, the word of God. But he carves out two groups within that naming of that general group, doesn't he? There are two types of men who are preaching the gospel. There are men who are preaching Christ from a pure heart and from good motives. And there are men who preach Christ from selfish motives. From envy and rivalry. It's a puzzling thing for Paul to say, isn't it? That he he has the preachers of the gospel. And he's saying some are doing it from a pure heart. Some are doing it from bad motives. We need to think about that just a little bit. The first thing we can conclude, this is the most important thing. Is that the problem with what the the second group. the, 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 The group of men doing it from envy and rivalry. They were not... uh diluting the message of the gospel. Paul has shown himself in Corinthians, especially in Galatians, other places throughout the New Testament, that when the gospel is at stake, when someone is preaching a false gospel, he will condemn what is going on. And so certainly, that is not what's going on here. The message, the content of the message was not the problem. What seems to be happening here is that in some sense, these men who preach from selfish ambition, are viewing Paul's ministry as a rivalry ministry. 
And so they saw his imprisonment as an opportunity to say, well, Paul's ministry has failed, so now I'm going to talk about that in the midst of my talking and preaching the gospel, and I'm going to try to gain as big a following as Paul. They're viewing his imprisonment as a failure and as an opportunity to advance beyond what he is doing. This phenomenon is actually, I must confess, it's systemic among pastors. We're always tempted to view the successes and failures of others against the backdrop of our own ministry. It's this constant tug of war. and Who's winning the battle? Of who's, the, who's the best preacher? Who can garner uh, the biggest following? Paul's challenge, it, by his example, to the rest of the believers at Philippians is to rethink worldly prestige. That in the church, this is not the way we are to think about it. It confronts us to reorder our thinking in light of what? In light of Christ and the gospel. You can rethink prestige when you rejoice in the person of Christ. When you think in a gospel-centered kind of way, don't you? Why are we able to abandon our conceit and our self-interest? Because the King of Kings gave himself for you. He has given you all that you need. He who was rich became poor so that you who are poor might become rich. Paul speaks about contentment in chapter 4 of Philippians. I've learned in whatever circumstances to be content. Why? Because of Christ. Because I can do all things through Christ. It is Christ who allows me to think about these things in a new way. He lays out his qualifications in chapter 3, doesn't he? He says it's all nothing. It's garbage. Comparing to knowing Christ by faith. All of the worldly prestige, all of the honor I would receive, it's nothing compared to having my Savior. And so that's the way that we think about worldly prestige. That's the way that we need to think about, especially that in in the church, that we're all serving our Lord. We're living for our King of Kings who has given us all that we need and thus we can live with a faith that says, I do not need uh, that recognition for myself. Why? Because Christ humbled himself. You notice that phrase, they're preaching from selfish ambition. He's setting up the Philippians to hear in chapter 2, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Why? Because Christ did nothing from selfish ambition. He is the one who humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So how do you rethink worldly prestige. You rejoice in the person of Christ. You live according to the gospel. And you say, as you'd say with Samuel Rutherford, we need need not fear crosses. We need not sigh over our circumstances. We We need not be sad for anything that is on this side of heaven if we have Christ. Do you have Christ? Do you love him? Do you know him? Is he your savior? If you do, then It is to reorder uh, your thinking and rethink uh, prestige as you rejoice in the person of Christ. Look to Christ and look to his humility. This does not mean to be passive or to walk timidly through this world. Oftentimes, uh, men struggle with that. They say, what's the, the, the relationship between sort of embracing the humility of Christ and the gospel and uh, to live according to the way that God has engineered me? As a, as a man, to have strength and courage. Well, Paul says it right here in this passage, doesn't he? To live with courage and fearlessness. To walk through this world looking to your king with strength. Men, God calls you to do that. 
was reading this week, Kent Hughes is talking about being a man of God. He says, it takes unbelievable strength and courage to die to yourself and to die to this world. It's not about walking timidly through this world. It's about walking through this world with strength, courage, and fearlessness. To entrust yourselves to your God. God calls all of his people to be a witness to these realities. To to allow this to be the way that we approach our circumstances. You think about Paul here, imprisoned for Christ, in chains for Christ. And most of us will never be in chains, certainly never be in chains if we stay stateside. But the more that we live not for the security and comfort and pleasures of this world, the more that we can rejoice in our losses and our crosses because of Christ, the more God will be pleased to use us for his glory. All of this comes, of course, not through our effort, but in seeing and rejoicing in Christ our Savior, and having the love uh, that he had shed abroad in our hearts to be filled with the love of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would lead us by your grace and by your power. We thank you for uh, these challenging words as we rethink And as we address our conceit, our self-centeredness, Father, may Christ, our Savior, ever be present in our minds. He was rich, became poor for us. He became sin for us. Impress the glory of that gospel truth upon our minds today, that we might be equipped by your Spirit to live according to these things. Not for our salvation, but for your glory in our lives, for you have given us salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.